1674, some of you are going, wow, that's a long time ago. Even for some of us in here, that's a long time ago, right? Margaret Halcrow married a man named Henry Erskine. Henry was a Presbyterian pastor in the Church of Scotland. I'm sorry, Henry Margaret, this is... I've been around a while. This Henry was a Presbyterian pastor in the Church of Scotland. And not long after they were married, Margaret became seriously ill and eventually was pronounced dead. And you're thinking, man, that's a strange way to put that. Well, that's a clue for you. She was pronounced dead. Uh, Henry loved Margaret, and he mourned her deeply. And he buried her with her jewelry, especially a very valuable ring on her finger. Well, in their village, the local carpenter where they lived was something of a funeral director. He'd build the coffins, he'd, he'd dig the graves, he would bury the deceased. And when the carpenter came to make final preparations for Margaret's coffin, he noticed the ring on her finger and the, and the jewelry around her neck. And he thought to himself, what a terrible waste of such fine jewelry. Some of you are laughing. Uh, after all was done... At the graveside, Henry left to go home, uh, but the carpenter stayed behind. When everyone was gone, he removed the coffin lid and proceeded to remove Miss Margaret's jewelry. The ring, however, he could not get off. And so taking out his knife, he made an attempt to amputate her finger. As he began to make his cut, Miss Erskine woke up. Remember, pronounced dead. Um, apparently, you've got to remember when this was now, 1600s. We don't have the modern medical technology we have today. Uh, apparently, she had been in a deep coma. And as you might expect, uh, the terrified carpenter ran for his life, leaving poor Margaret to climb out of the coffin on her own. Uh, she did so. She made her way home. and She got to the home. Knocked on the door, and when the maid opened the door, she fainted. <laughs> now, Henry was elated, as you might well expect. So over a period of time, Margaret was nursed back to full strength. Margaret became the mother of two famous brothers, both of them preachers, Ralph and, bless his heart, Ebenezer Erskine. Both of these were close associates of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Now, there's some of you in this room are going, okay. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, have no idea. You young people go home and you, you're tech savvy. Google those names and research those names. It'll be well worth your time to discover who those two men are. Um, these two brothers were also used by God greatly during the revival and a spiritual awakening in the Church of Scotland. Now, uh, if you could find him and get him to stop shaking long enough to speak to you, I'm sure the carpenter in the village would tell you the moral of this story. At least he'd tell you one of the morals of this story. Appearances can be deceiving. Miss Erskine looked dead, but she was alive after all. The church at Sardis, however, looked alive, but in fact, she was dead. If you're looking at your handout... You see, the main idea is the danger of spiritual indifference. The danger of spiritual indifference. All these letters are written to these churches 
And within each letter, there's a danger for the church to be aware of. For that particular church and for all seven of the churches to be aware of these same dangers as well as us today. And also on your handout there, I borrowed from a particular commentator this danger here. Spiritual lukewarmness and compromise will lead to the death of a church, but Jesus is faithful to restore those who hear and repent. So looking at verse 1, we've outlined it this way. Jesus says, My perfect spirit sees everything. And to the angel of the church, Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So once again, there's a letter here from Jesus, and it's addressed to the church's angel, its messenger, the representative of that church. And so Jesus is saying, take this letter to my church. And this letter is addressing the situation in the church at Sardis. As well as addressing all the churches throughout the history of the church. The angel of the church in Sardis, right. I don't know about you, when I read those words, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That catches my attention. Uh, a little background on Sardis to kind of help you understand if you, the church at Sardis, and you hear this letter being read to you, there's some things that you hear that cause you to, you know, your ears stick up. And it's very important for us to understand something about Sardis. Sardis was a fortress city. The city sat atop these steep, jagged rock cliffs which seemed impossible to climb. The city sat up on these really high places and it was surrounded by these jagged, steep rocks, these hills. And again, it was thought to be impossible to scale those to get to the city. The city was guarded on three sides by these cliffs. And because of its location, you can imagine the residents of Sardis tended to consider themselves as being invincible. No one's going to get to us. Right? No one's going to come after us. If they do, they can't even get to us to begin with. Well, the ruler of Sardis was so sure of this thought himself that he refused to place guards on the walls. No one's going to climb the walls and get to us. It's a waste of manpower. Plus, we've got to pay them guys. You know? The guy works at night. You've got to pay him double time. He's, he's working at night. Save us some money. Well... The king of Persia, Cyrus, was not convinced of this. He and his army scaled the cliffs at night and took the city by surprise. This is true. This is actual history. Not only did this happen once, but it happened twice. Another ruler of the city, 300 years later, what's the old saying? If we don't know the history, it has a tendency to repeat itself. 300 years later, the thought was still the same. It's impossible to take... Sardis, And just as before, another king and his army would scale the cliffs and they would take Sardis. Because of a lack of alertness, the city at Sardis is making the same mistake in spiritual matters. You see, there's a connection here with this. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus describes himself, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, The number seven, I think at this point in time, we understand in the book of Revelation is symbolic. The number seven is a number representing perfection, completeness, or fullness. That's what that number is representing. It's symbolic of those, those things. Seven spirits of God here is a reference to the one Holy Spirit who is complete, perfect, and full. The seven stars are the angelic messengers that 
each are assigned to a church. So Jesus is saying, He has the Holy Spirit and the angelic messengers. That's what He's saying. And so, what is the point He's making here with these, these statements? Well, again, you've got to have Scripture to help you interpret Scripture. If we look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6, here's what we hear. We read that John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. If you read those verses, you hear the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. This seems to point to Jesus as the one who has a full report given to Him by the Spirit of God who patrols the earth and is fully advised of all that takes place. This would also seem to be what the reference to the seven stars is getting at as well. The seven stars are identified again as the angels of the seven churches in chapter 1 verse 20. I take these angels of the churches to be angelic representatives who report to Jesus. So, unlike the city of Sardis, and apparently unlike the church in Sardis, listen, Jesus is fully alert. He's fully informed and completely aware of all that takes place in heaven and on earth and in His church. As the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, here's what Jesus is saying. Nothing escapes me. Nothing gets by me. And because Jesus is fully alert, fully informed, nothing escapes His notice. He sees past the shallow surfaces of health in the church at Sardis. He sees past all that. Remember, you have a reputation, but here's what I see. Verse 1 says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Every time I read those words this week, it was just kind of like, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Jesus is fully aware. I, I know your works. They had works. The church was known for good works. It was known for being active. You have a reputation that you are alive. The church at Sardis had a reputation. They were known as being very active and very alive. That was their reputation. And when you stop and think about it, you're thinking, well, that's a good reputation to have, right? But Jesus knows the reality. He knows the heart behind the works. He knows that while the church appears to be alive, the church is very active, it is really, Jesus says, what? Dead. You have a reputation for being alive. It appears that you're alive. But I know, I see all things, I'm fully aware, I'm completely aware, and here's what I see, you're dead. That's Jesus' verdict. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Just imagine Jesus saying that to a church. How would you like to be the angel or the messenger to show up to this church and say, hey, i got a word from you from Jesus, and here it is. If that messenger is the pastor, he might be looking for another job, he, tells, he reads that to those people. You're alive, but you're dead. Jesus knows their works, but they're dead. They, they have works that show there's life. The, the works of a healthy church, you know, I think they're, they're obvious. The works of a healthy church are obvious, and some of those would be clear and authoritative proclamation of the Word of God. 
vigorous, spirit-filled worship, committed, sacrificial, loving community among the members, bold, consistent proclaiming of the gospel in the community, and as they're able, reaching the ends of the earth, reaching the boy, people group, ministering to the hurting in the community, all these are marks of a living church. And that's by no means an exhaustive list. Those are just some things that would be indicators of a live church. Sardis had a reputation. Literally, reputation means to have a name. They had a name. They, they look alive. Everyone thinks them to be healthy and vibrant, but appearances can be deceiving. They look alive. This is not a church where there are no signs of activity. They, they, they look alive. They have a reputation for alive. But what does Jesus say? You're dead. He can see what no one else sees. Again, He is, after all, the one who holds the seven stars in His hand. He knows the truth, even though the church at Sardis has fooled everyone else. He knows them. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, a verse that's very familiar to us, that the Lord doesn't look at the things that you and I look at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about this this week, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm reading this, and I'm going, how does that happen? All of that work, but what? Dead. That's hard for me to, you know, I, I struggle with that. I mean, now, don't misunderstand me. This is the Word of God. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just trying to reconcile those things. All of that work, but Jesus says they're dead. How, how's that possible? Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, they were... They looked alive. They had the reputation of being alive, but there was something going on. There was, and we read the scriptures, and it says, "What's the result of being dead? Sin's the result of being dead, spiritually dead." Now we don't know the specific sin in Sardis. We, we aren't given those specifics, but if you look at verse four, Jesus says that there are a few who have not soiled their garments. Which means what? There are a whole bunch who have. Jesus says there are a few who have not soiled their garments. That could be some of the problems we've seen in the previous churches, the letters prior to this. In other words, these few had not fallen into sinful practices. We don't know what those are specifically, but... That's what's going on. There's sin somewhere in there, and it could be some of those previous sins from the other churches, but we're not sure. But they're what? They appear to be alive, but they are dead. You know, there's a lot of people who walk around who are lost, who think they're right with God, but they're what? Dead. In the church at Sardis, the reality of spiritual life had been replaced by, listen, by a mere reputation. A mere form, a mere appearance of life. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. Here's what I want you to understand. 
The fact that Jesus would even come to this church and point that out to them is His mercy toward them to wake them up. Look at your handout, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, here's how to be revitalized. I think you understand. Alive, but dead. Revitalized means what? Bring back to life. Revival. Jesus says, stop and think about that again. The mercy of Jesus, you're dead, but look. Here's what you do. Here's the prescription. Here's God's way. Here's my way of bringing you back to life. We hear that word revitalized. Um, That is a, uh, how can I say this? That's a buzzword that's going around and um, church life, no other way to put it. Studies have been done over the last several years and it's estimated that 65% of the churches in North America are plateaued or declining. 65% of the churches in North America, the place where we think God dwells, 65% of His churches who are to be the salt and light on mission for Him are what? They're plateaued or they're they're dropping. They're, They're declining. I think this is the perfect letter for for the church to go. Here's what we do. Revitalize. What what do you you mean by that? Well, in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rayner, which is most recently was the CEO of Lifeway. Everybody familiar with Lifeway? The the, the curriculum publisher for the Southern Baptist Convention, that entity's life. Well, he's, he's recently moved away from being the president. He started his own consulting business. In his book, uh, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence. Everyone knows what an autopsy is, right? You take the deceased and you figure out what caused them to die. That's what this book's about. In his book, Rainer gives an analysis for dying or dead churches. I'm going to give you some of these. The church has lost its zeal for local outreach. They become inward focused. They care more about what makes them happy rather than what Jesus wants them to do. Let me stop right here. Um, I didn't explain. Autopsy, right? I'm going to look at this deceased body and I'm going to figure out what caused the death, right? So... Rainer and Lifeway researched a thousand churches that had died to find out why. And these are the things they discovered. The church had lost its zeal for local outreach. They become inward focused. They care more about what makes them happy than what Jesus wants them to do. Three, the church turns its back on biblical teaching. Again, these are things that they went to these churches who had died, who were about to die, and they asked the people who were left... And they discovered this is what caused them to die. Fourth, the church stopped dealing with sin and tolerated worldliness among its members. The church stopped praying together. The words of Jesus come to mind, without me, you can do nothing. Fifth, the church 
Oh, excuse me, that was number five. The church stopped praying together. Six, the church stopped developing the next generation of godly leaders. You're thinking, well, what's the big deal with that? If you don't develop godly leaders, what's going to happen to the church? There's going to be no one to lead it, to carry it on. Seven, the church spent more of its time, money, and energy on itself than on spreading the gospel. The church became more and more worldly in its appearance, especially as it related to key moral issues. The church becomes more lethargic and lifeless in corporate worship. No passion in worship or failing to attend worship. (coughs) Ten, the church clung to traditionalism, always celebrating the past, which is fine to do, but not looking forward to what better things God will do. You know, it's, it's very difficult to move forward if you're always looking behind, right? We should look behind us to see what God did in the past, but God says what? I can do even more than that. And the last thing I'll give you here, and there was more, but for sake of time, they hold on to old patterns of ministry that are no longer fruitful. That's just the way we've always done it. It don't work no more. Well, that's the way we've always done it. Jesus says, you have the appearance, the reputation of life, but no reality of life. Jesus has come to this church. He's performed an autopsy on them, and they're what? Dead. What can be done? Jesus says, here's how you do it. Listen, this is the mercy of Jesus. Verse 1, excuse me, verse 2, first thing, wake up. Wake up is a call to recognize the implications of their actions. Wake up has the idea of being watchful or being alert. Those words no doubt got the attention of people in Sardis because of their history, right? You're sitting in Sardis and somebody says, we better wake up. What do they think? The city fell twice to enemies due to a failure to be watchful. Jesus says a lack of spiritual alertness is extremely costly. He says you've got to wake up. Second, he says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What little that remains, you need to strengthen that. Build it back up. Why? Because it's what? It's about to die. Specifically, Jesus says, I've not found your works. Which verse 1 says, I know your works. I've not found them. I've not found your works complete before God. One commentator says, although the quantity of their works was incomplete, it's more likely that it was the quality of their works that was most lacking. In other words, they had grown content with mediocre, half-hearted, comfortable, convenient Christianity. That's the church in America today, folks. Preacher, I got my ticket. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. I got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. People grow content, half-hearted, comfortable. They want convenient Christianity. I'm in, preacher. Don't ask me if nothing else. I'm in, church. I don't need the church. I'm going to heaven. Jesus is saying, your walk with me is weak. That's what He was saying. Here's what I want to call myself and us to think. The lost people on our jobs, at our schools, in the community, those that are 
Attend worship with us. Jesus is saying to this church here, people saw nothing different or authentic about their faith. People simply ignored them as of no real effect or significance. You have a reputation of being alive, but there's nobody coming in. Did the lost people in our jobs, in our schools, in our community, do they see any real effect or significance about our faith? When we tell them we're a Christian, do they look at us and go, okay, are they kind of like, let's talk about that. Tell me about that. Verse 3, he says, remember them. The idea is to continue to call to remembrance. Continue to call it to remembrance, okay? What you have received and heard. This does away with the idea I can just get my ticket to heaven and then I'm going to coast and I'm going to do my thing. Jesus says, no, you need to remember what you received and heard. Jesus calls the church in Sardis. He calls all churches. What are they to remember? What you've received and heard. He's talking about the gospel. That's what he's talking about. The need to continue to recall the truth of the gospel that they had received and heard. Here's what Jesus is saying. Over and over and over again, every single day, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. How many of y'all have ever heard that before? Over and over. What you've heard and received, you've got to continually remind yourselves of that. You need to continue to remind yourselves of what Jesus did for you on the cross and in His resurrection. That does away with the idea, I've got my ticket, I'm going to do my thing. If you're constantly remembering what it is that Jesus has done for you, Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. The life that you should have lived, but you couldn't. He died to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay. He took the wrath of God that should have been yours. And then He gives you eternal life and promises you a new heaven and a new earth. Then He writes your name in the book of life, verse 5, where it can never be erased. I don't know about you, but that tells me there's a lot more to being a Christian than just having your ticket punched to go to heaven. When was the last time, Christian, you sat and considered what it is that Jesus has done for you? When was the last time you sat and contemplated the gospel? When was the last time you showed up at corporate worship to genuinely worship Jesus and encourage others in the gospel? Why do you hesitate to confess such a Savior? Why do we compromise gospel truth and live godless lies which disgrace the name of Jesus and taint His church? Jesus says, remember, remember, remember. Let me give you a practical application here. This would be a good thing for you to do. If you know Jesus, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I've been doing this over the last several weeks. Not that I had never done it before, but over the last several weeks in my prayer time, I've been sitting and I've been thinking about the morning that I got saved. I think about that this week. I've been visualizing my mind that morning when I got up after having been to church on a Wednesday night and the Spirit of God moving my heart and me saying, I can't do that. These people already think I'm a Christian. I can't do that. What will they think of me? And then getting up the next morning and going in the bathroom, looking in the mirror and the Spirit of God saying, today is the day. 
You need to forget about what everybody else says. Today's the day. Kneeling on the floor beside the toilet, I repented and trusted Christ. I was thinking about that today. I was thinking about the gospel and the grace that God had showed to me. Time and time again, I'd heard the gospel and I kept saying, I'm right with God. And then God showed me the mercy to finally help my heart see that I was lost. Think about when you got saved and what God did to redeem your soul. Remember, Jesus says. He says, remember. See, church, if we remember and contemplate the gospel, we can't help but do things for God to bring glory to His name. In verse 4, He says, keep it. Do more than simply remember the Word. He says, keep it. The Christian is not merely uh, about hearing the gospel and agreeing with it. One indicator of true saving faith is obedience. Keeping the gospel. I, I, I don't mind telling you, I, I've done this long enough now, when I talk to someone, they tell me they're a Christian, you know what I ask them? Are you keeping the gospel? And they look at me like, what do you mean? Are you keeping the gospel? Are you living for Jesus? Does your life reflect that your life has been transformed? Now, that kind of takes people back. You've got to be careful. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, we're all familiar with that passage, the Great Commission. That's what we refer to it, chapter uh, 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus, Jesus commands us to not just make converts, to, to just ask, lead people, you know, pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. He commissions the church to proclaim the gospel to all peoples and to bring into the church those uh, through baptism who have responded by repentance of sin and faith in Christ. And then he says this, teach them to keep all that I have commanded. Can I tell you, church, we got a huge task, right? The boy people got six and a half million people who are lost, who, who need to hear the gospel. But the latter part of that is, is a challenge. What does Jesus say do? Don't just make converts out of them, but do what? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. How much is all, church? All. That's why it's so important that you and I be committed and dependent on God in prayer. We're not going to accomplish what God's given us to do in our own strength. Teach them to keep all that Jesus commanded. It's the same, same here in Revelation chapter 3. This all-encompassing message of leading people to Jesus and teaching them to follow Jesus. Listen, that's the foundation of the church. That is our mission. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian not being a disciple. Read the New Testament. There's nothing of a Christian who is not a disciple. All true Christians are disciples. That message is the sole basis on which Jesus is building His church. He's not going to build the church on nothing but that great commission. There's to be no other foundation from which we, the church, will build Jesus' church. It's not feelings, it's not numbers, it's not activity, it's not programs, it's not relevance. All of these can assist in proclaiming the gospel, but they are not the gospel. For those who repent and trust Jesus, we teach them all the gospel. We teach them how all the gospel affects every area of their life. Parenting, finances, their work. How they relate to people in the community. The gospel affects everything. That's why Jesus says you've got to teach them what? All that I have commanded. Keeping. Keeping. The gospel is evidenced by lives motivated by the Spirit rather than the passions of this world. And then the fifth thing Jesus says is repent. 
Keeping the Word means we do what the Word calls us to do. Jesus tells the church at Sardis to do what? Repent. Listen. This is directed at believers. Not lost people. It's directed at believers. Remember the truth that you've received and heard. Hold on to it and repent. I, I said He is directing this toward believers. And let me say this. Those of you who are sitting here today who, who are an unbeliever, you're lost. You've never trusted in Christ. I'm going to go back to the first thing that Jesus said. Wake up. Confess your sin. Turn to Jesus and trust Him. I think that can apply to you as well. You know, most Christians have the effective view of repentance. We know we repented from sin when we were saved, but we make a big mistake when we fail to understand that repentance is an ongoing thing in the life of a healthy Christian. Listen, newsflash. Well, it's not news to you. I've said this before. Your pastor in the pulpit, he repents daily of his sin. Some days I think, my Lord, if people knew what was going through my mind, you're probably sitting there going, yeah, I'm in the boat with you. From the looks of it, the church at Sardis had forgotten the grace of repentance. As a result, they were in danger Listen, they were in danger of receiving a surprise visit from Jesus. Let me illustrate that for you. How many of you have ever been sitting at home and somebody show up and it catch you off guard and it surprised you? You're like, you know, maybe you got your PJs on, you're kind of like, shoot to the back of the house, put your clothes on, come back. Think about that. Look at verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour, at what hour I will come against you. This coming of Jesus here, listen, don't misunderstand this. This is not the second coming of Jesus for all believers. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, it's a coming in judgment against the church. This is a grace warning. Even though this is a warning to the church... This is a warning to the church. Let me once again, I want to speak to those here today who are, who are unsaved. Maybe you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus because you're afraid of what your family or friends will think of you, just like I did. Or maybe you're afraid of what it will do to your reputation. Maybe you think that you'll be okay drifting through life, casually associated with the church, avoiding any open confession of the name of Jesus. Jesus says that's not life, that's death. If you will not openly confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, He will come against you. And listen, you will not know when He's coming. And you'll not be able to stop Him. His coming against you is worse than whatever consequences you're trying to avoid by confessing Him. My call to you today is to confess your sin and trust in Jesus. Verse 4. Jesus says, some are holy and worthy of my praise. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Excuse me, and they, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Uh, the, the word soil there has the idea of being polluted or, or, or defiled. Garments in the Bible symbolize character. 
That's what they're talking about. It's talking about the person's character. The idea here is one of spiritual contamination. A spiritual corrupting of their Christian witness by conforming to the present trends of their culture or of a lifestyle. There are a few, not many, who are not stained by the world in the church at Sardis. Here's what these few did. They remembered the gospel. They heard it and kept it. And they repented of their sin. In doing so, gives evidence that they were genuine believers. That's what Jesus is saying. There's some of you who give evidence. There are a few of you. The faithful few could come into God's presence because they had polluted themselves. Christians who are careless in the world, they get soiled by the world. But not these few. They kept their witness pure. And the promise given to them is, notice, they will walk with Jesus in white. Uh, I think most of us, when we think of white, we think of purity, right? It represents justification. It indicates that they're made right with God. Why will they walk with Jesus in white? Notice what it says, because they are, what does it say? Worthy. Because they're worthy. It's not that they had earned God's favor, but they remembered, heard, and kept the gospel, and they lived a life of repentance. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus confesses those who are righteous and are in the book of life. The one who conquers <coughs> excuse me, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Again, Jesus promises what? White robes. Again, white is symbolic of purity. Combined with the word conquer, it results in victory. White robes are for those who conquer. Those who conquer are those who are faithful to confess Jesus, whatever it costs. And these white robes are just another assurance of eternal life. But I want us to pay close attention to what else Jesus says there. He says, I will never blot His name out of the book of life. Now, when you read that, it's kind of like, what, does verse 5 imply that it's possible for a person's name to be written in the book of life and then later erased? No. In fact, it means just the opposite. Verse 5 is absolute assurance that it will not be erased. It's another guarantee that the believer cannot lose his salvation. That's what Jesus says. I will not erase his name. We hear the same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. He said, I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The idea there in John is that they shall by no means perish. And it's the same here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. They shall by no means be erased. Verse 5, Jesus promises, notice there, Confess those who are clothed in His righteousness before the Father and His angels. Remember, they had a reputation, they had a name, but Jesus is saying here, 
For those who have not stained themselves, those few, I'm going to confess them before my Father and the angels. He will acknowledge their name as evidence that He knows them and calls them His own. They'll not be ashamed of Him and He's not going to be ashamed of them. I was thinking about it this week. Jesus is going to tell the Father, Gary belongs to me. He's mine. And He's going to tell the same things to the angel of God. This is another promise that our name is permanently written in the book of life. You know, as I read this, I, I think, you know, of applying this, we're not to simply go through the motions as the way they seem to be doing here in Sardis. We're to own Jesus as Savior and Lord and King of our lives. Listen, that's what the New Testament says He is. And there's no other options for us. This is a promise that should motivate you to live faithful in your Christian walk, to stay clean and, and pursue holiness, all of which reflect the transforming work of Jesus in your life. Verse 6. In each of the seven letters, Jesus says this same thing. Uh, I don't know about you. You ever heard the old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? You notice that every one of these letters, Jesus says this same thing over and over and over. It's His mercy over and over and over again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, just like I've said in the, the previous letters, are you listening? Am I listening? That's how each of these letters ends. Jesus says to each one, are you listening? If you're dead in trespasses and sins, wake up, repent. That's what Jesus says. If you're saved, but sleeping and idle and indifferent and worldly, remember and hold fast and strengthen what remains. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about what people in the community think. Jesus says, what matters is what I think and what I say about you. And if you're one of the few, verse 4, Spiritually, you're an energetic, you're an alive person, and you're counting your blessings and the eternal promises that Jesus says awaiting you. Let me finish by just giving some practical application of a few things here that I want to put in my mind and in your mind. Quite simple we need to be fearful of spiritual indifference. We need to flee and run away from spiritual deadness like it was a bad disease. It's vital for us to hear and take heed to God's Word. And listen to me. I'm going to say this as lovingly as I know how. Don't you ever say that this could never happen to me or happen to us. We need to be on our guard constantly. Little by little, we can slip into coldness and it starts when we begin putting off prayer and taking God's Word both privately and corporately. Pray that we stop making excuses for not attending worship. Or maybe we don't have an excuse. We just don't go. 
Pray that we don't start to play with sin, secret sin, which grows into open public sin. These things will kill a church. And again, I'm going to say this lovingly. I've had it said to me in the past, in other places, and I've had it said to me even here. We've always been here, and we will always be here. I'm going to tell you something. That's dangerous thinking. Just ask the church at Ephesus. 300 years after they received this letter from Jesus, you know where that church was at? Nowhere to be found. Some of you might think, well, in 300 years, I wouldn't expect a whole lot now to be around either. Is that what you want for your church? Is that what you want for this church? Well, in 300 years, I won't be here. It doesn't matter. That's dangerous thinking, folks. Because your great, 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 great grandkids who come to Christ are going to be here if, the, if a church still remains. I'm not saying that because I don't think it won't. I'm just saying we need to have the mindset that we've got to be vigilant. Pray that the preaching ministry will be strong and not shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God's Word. All of it. Notice I said the whole counsel. Not just the parts we want to hear, but all of it. Pray that you, we would be vigorous in sharing the gospel in the community, on our jobs and in our schools. Pray for your children to be faithful as much as you pray for them to get good grades in the college education and great careers. Pray that we would care about unreached people groups and missions. Pray that we would have a heart for the poor and needy in our community. Pray that we would care about holiness and be fighting sin by the power of the Spirit. Pray that we, not just your pastors, would be vigorously active in each other's lives. Pray that we as individuals and as a church would be vibrant in prayer. And I'm talking about corporate prayer. Remember, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Pray that when we come together in corporate worship, pray that our time together is passionate. That we celebrate. Pray for us to gather for God-honoring worship. Not just on Easter or Christmas or next Sunday at homecoming, but every single Sunday. Pray that God will remove the hindrances to our worship. Jesus said, wake up. That's His mercy. And there's one last thing I want to say. I say this because I too have been there. <clears throat> Has God commanded something in His Word that is difficult for you to accept? I've been there. And I'll probably be there again. Has God commanded something in His Word that is difficult for you to accept? Ask Him to change your heart so that His Word becomes beautiful to you in that particular area that you don't like. Let's pray.